Good evening. It's time to begin our services this evening. Good to see everybody out tonight. Begin with number 934. 252, 252, Wayfaring Stranger. <clears throat> After this song, uh, Mike will have our reading and prayer for this evening. Yeah. 
Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you at this time, Lord, thanking you for this another day of life that you've blessed us with, Father. We thank you for the beautiful weather that you've given to us, Father, and we're just reminded of your your power and your glory when we look around, Father, and to see all that you've made. And Father, we thank you for time here this evening that we can come together like-minded Christians to sing praises to you, to study from your word. And Father, we thank you for Chris and the time that he puts into uh, to studying, to, to come up with a lesson to share with us. And we just pray, Lord, that we'll take what he says and put it to use, Lord, that we can be a, a light in this world and, and bring more people to know you. And, and Father, we thank you for Amber and her uh, willingness to come forward this morning, Father. We know that we all of us have struggles and challenges, and we're just thankful for her courage to, to come forward, and we just pray for her and, and Nathan and their family, and just bless them. And, and Father, be with all those that are hurting this day. Father, so many that are on the prayer list, we just continue to pray for them, those that have been mentioned today, and especially uh, be with Barrett, um, Niffer, Father, friends of Kelly and Chris, just bless him, and be with the doctors that are tending to him and just be with his parents and, and continue to be with Carol and Charlie and, and all the others, Father, and, and just help us to, uh, to encourage those that, that need it, Father. And, and Father, just uh, be with those that are graduating uh, from high school and college. Just bless them as they transition into this new uh, time in their life and we just pray that they will continue to look to you and, and follow you and, and just help us to, uh, to be, uh, be uh, encouragers for them and just help them where we can, Father, and just be good examples um, by our actions and our words. And, and Father, just uh, continue to be with us this evening, uh, give us safe travels home and a good night's rest, and, and forgive us when we do fall short. Through Jesus we do pray. Amen. The reading this evening uh, comes from Genesis chapter 17, verses 15 through 17. Genesis 17, 15 through 17. And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? Next song this evening is Listen to Our Hearts. <clears throat> not in the book.
For the lesson tonight, number 824, and the song after the lesson is number 319. If you would stand for this song, please. 824.
Song of Invitation number 319, 319. Good evening. It's good to see each one of you back with us tonight. Sunday nights are, uh, are, are fun and unique because we kind of get to dig into a little bit more of the meat of the word that we don't get to deal with on Sunday mornings because we're having to deal with some other kinds of issues. Um, so Sunday nights are, are, are a good time for us to dig in and really get a hold of some of the meat of what God's trying to tell us. So grab your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 11. I know we're back in Mark. You may be getting tired of hearing about Mark. I hope not. Uh, I really love this gospel now. And there are so many little tidbits as I travel through it uh, with you guys uh, that kind of pique my interest. And uh, I hope they do yours as well. And I've, had, I've referred to those as strands that we pull in the past. And some of those strands lead to these uh, just incredible uh, revelations uh, that, that we probably get from other sections of Scripture, but you never expect to find it there in Mark. Uh, and some of them, you, you start pulling on the strand, and it, and it leads you down this rabbit chase, and you get four, five, six hours into it, and you think, well, I'm farther along than I was, but I'm not sure I still understand this passage. It can be so, so deep, can't it? And it deserves every minute of our study. It deserves to be read slowly and thoughtfully, contemplatively. Uh, and so tonight, we're going to try to do that with this passage here in Mark chapter 11. Uh, if you're anything like me, prayer is one of the things that uh, you've probably studied quite a bit about, um, but you still feel like maybe you don't know enough about it, because you still kind of struggle with it maybe, don't you? Uh, at least that's me. I've studied on this topic extensively um, for, for many, many years. And uh, you still kind of sometimes feel like, well, I don't have as good a grasp on this as I really ought to. When I come to Scripture, I understand. God speaks to me. I, I got it. I understand how to break apart those passages uh, and I'll listen to what he's saying to me. Sometimes I struggle to talk back. Uh, and if you're anything like me, maybe, maybe tonight's lesson will be helpful for you. Mark chapter 11, or, or the section we're going to be looking at there is toward the end of the passage in, in chapter in verse 20, as Jesus curses the fig tree. Uh, we looked at this passage uh, as a whole with the rest of Mark chapter 11 a couple weeks ago um, and just didn't have the time to dig into it like I wanted to. Uh, on Sunday mornings in Mark, I, I'm trying to go through these massive sections of Scripture so we can get what Mark's trying to teach us out of that section. And some of them, like the one this morning, are just too vast. He, he's combined all these different uh, stories and, and, and uh, interviews where, people, where Jesus meets people. It's just it, We have to break them apart, and we need to spend a little bit of extra time with some of them. We weren't able to do that in Mark chapter 11 here, starting in verse 20 with this, when Jesus comes across this fig tree, because it's such a central focus of what Mark was trying to get across to us in Mark chapter 11, uh, the hypocrisy. And the uh, unfruitfulness of the Jewish leadership and this fig tree uh, <laughs> is in the wrong place at the wrong time, I guess, if you want to put it like that. Uh, it looked like it was uh, fruitful. It looked like uh, it, it would have figs in it. But by the time Jesus got over to it, you remember the story well, I'm sure. If not, go back through Mark chapter 11 and read it. He gets up to it, and sure enough, the thing doesn't have any figs. Even though it's not the season for figs, it doesn't have figs, but it looked right. And Jesus curses it, uh, and then he comes into the, the temple, and he will obliterate the, uh, the Jewish leadership from there on. Uh, because they look right, they're not actually right. 
their hearts are still very far away from him. Uh, their hearts haven't turned toward him. In fact, their hearts have turned toward themselves. They just want what they want. They're selfish. And they refuse to submit. They want the power. They want the acclaim. They want everybody looking at them. That's just not how it works in the kingdom. And so Jesus uses this victory as an illustration. But what is so interesting is what Peter tells us about this fig tree. Um, look in verse 20. Mark chapter 11, verse 20. Peter, we've talked about him in the past. If you're like me, you identify with Peter. He's, he's the one that sometimes speaks before he thinks. Uh, he, he's the, often referred to him as the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth because he just can't seem to keep his foot out of his mouth. And here's another one of those instances where he just, he just hasn't gotten it. And Jesus has expected him to get it by this point. He expects at least the 12 to get it. And I think he's looking at, obviously, he's looking at the scribes, the Pharisees, the, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, all these guys looking at them going, you should get it by now. <laughs> Why have you not picked it up yet? Uh, but at the very least, the 12 should have understood, and they're just not. And Peter represents here all 12 of, all 12 of the apostles. He's just standing in as, as the leader here of the, the 12. But uh, I'm sure all the rest of them were thinking the exact same thing as he is here. Let's listen to what he says. Mark chapter 11, verse 20. As they passed by in the morning... They saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. Remember the previous day, Jesus had come through, cursed the fig tree, then goes into Jerusalem. He casts out the people in the temple. We talked about what all that means. So keep that in mind because that plays into what this passage means right here. That's why context is so, so, so important. If you're studying through a section of scripture like this, you have got to understand what's going on ahead of it and behind it. Uh, Context is so, so vitally important. Uh, that's one of the things that we just have to pay attention to. You've got to put in the legwork. You've got, to, you've got to put in the time to figure out what the context is. And this is one of those passages where you just are not going to be able to get his point and a point that's applicable to us if you're not willing to put in the time for the context. So we, we've put in the con- time for the context. So as they pass in the morning, they'll sell the fig tree wither way to its roots because it looked right, but it wasn't actually right. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. What's going through Peter's mind here? We don't don't want to put too many words into Peter's mouth here because he's pretty good at putting words in his own mouth. But you think he's surprised? I think he's kind of surprised. Um, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed is withered. What do you think Jesus' face looked like there? Well, duh, Peter, I cursed it, you know? Like, were you there when when Jesus calmed the storm? Jesus looked at a raging hurricane and said, stop, and the thing stopped. I mean, were you there, Peter, when Jesus multiplied the loaves? He he had a boy's lunch, and he prayed over it, and he just kept handing out bread and fish. Were you you there when... Uh, the little girl died, Jairus' daughter died, and he went over and he put his hand on her chest and told her to get up, and she got up. Were you there for any of those things, Peter? You've been paying attention at all for the last three years? Any of the disciples? And raise your hand. You know, anybody paying attention here? Of course it withered. I told it to. Of course it died. I told it to. That should have been Peter's reaction, Right? He shouldn't have been a surprise. He should have took this in step. The thing that would have been surprising would have been had the fig tree not died. That would have been worthy of comment. 
as they're walking by this fig tree, Peter looked over and said, oh, the fig tree's still alive. Hey, Jesus, what, what happened here? I mean, because you said you cursed this thing, but it's not dead. That would have been the thing that would have been worthy of comment, but that's not what happened, right? Peter is surprised. So what's going, what's going on here? He still hasn't made this connection. He's seen all these amazing things, like the calming of the storm, like the feeding of the 5,000, like healing lepers and healing blind men and lame men. And I mean, just we've gone through 20 plus of those miracles in the Gospel of Mark. By this time, they should have accepted him at his word, should have been completely aware that he has the power to do whatever he wants to do. But they just don't get it. Which, you stop and think about it for a second. Did the Israelites from the Old Testament, when God split the sea, the Red Sea, did they get it? No. Did they get it when he rained down manna, those little coriander seeds, and then rained down quail from heaven so that they could eat for 40 years? Did they get that? No. They never put that together, did they? And so maybe we shouldn't expect too much from, from the disciples here. I'm afraid maybe we haven't put two and two together either. And I think that's what Mark's trying to get across to us. Is you need to make, we need to make sure that we're putting this together. Listen to what he says here. Throughout the rest of this, this passage. Because Jesus doesn't do what you think he's going to do here. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't start talking about the fig tree. He starts talking about prayer. And that, that, messed, that messed me up. And so I started thinking, like, what, what's the fig tree have to do with prayer? Listen to it. Uh, maybe it'll mess you up, too. Maybe it's already messed you up and you, you've been thinking about it. Maybe you've got a good answer, too. Uh, here, here's what I'm thinking. Matthew chapter 11, verse 22. After, Jesus, or after Peter says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that, that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. What? <laughs> like, that's not where you expect Jesus to go with this conversation, is it? I expect Jesus to say, Peter, don't you remember the, all those miracles I already did? <laughs> Why are you not getting this? That's not what he does, though, is it? Or is it? He says, have faith in God. We can talk more about that in just a second, but listen to what he says in, in this next little section in verse 23. Uh, he starts talking about, you know, if, you, if you've got real faith, biblical faith, faith that moves, right? Faith that does something, faith that produces fruit. Remember, that's the problem with the Pharisees. That's the problem with the Jewish leadership. They look right. Man, they've got on the nice suit. They've got on the nice sandals, the toga. It's, they just look like a million bucks. They say all the right things. They talk about prayer. You remember, in fact, Jesus tells a story about a, uh, a Pharisee and a tax collector, isn't it? Where the, the Pharisee looks up to heaven. And he looks over at the, ta- at the tax collector. And he says, oh, God, I'm so glad I'm not like this poor wretch over there. Isn't it? It's just nice to be me, you know, and it's good to be. He's got all this pride. But what's the tax collector do? You remember? He beats his chest and he's just ashamed. He won't even lift his eyes up to heaven. And he says, Please be merciful to me, God, a sinner. And that's who the Pharisees are. They're all talk, not a lot of action. They want everybody to look at them. They want 
They want the acclaim. They want the authority. And they say all the right things. And they don't actually do anything. They don't have faith, right? Not like James talks about having faith. If you could turn over to James chapter 2, James talks an awful lot about faith, doesn't he? I think one of the first uh, series I taught through when, when we got here three years ago was, was James. And we talked an awful lot about faith in, in the book of James because he deals with it a lot. Biblical faith is not just words. James would say, well, if you say you've got faith, but you don't actually back it up with your actions, you don't actually have faith. You've got words, but you don't actually have faith. Biblical faith says the right things because of what's going on in your heart. Everybody with me? Your heart's right, so not only do you say the right things, but you also do the right things. You show mercy, you show kindness, you show grace, but you also love discipline, right? You understand that God will hold us accountable. We evangelize because of those, both of those things are true, right? James talks a lot about faith. And biblical faith is always, always, always backed up with action. You can say you've got faith, but if you don't actually do anything, you don't actually have faith. And that's exactly what the Jewish leadership is doing here. And that's why he curses them. That's why he condemns them. That, that awful parable that we talked about last week where Jesus talking about the, vine dresser, or the, the, the vineyard owner and how he comes in and he punishes the tenants. And that is, it's a hard parable to, to look at, to think through, and to put yourself in that position and to put your neighbor in that position, right? But that's a fact. There's an awful lot of people who say they have faith. They don't have actions to back it up, and they're going to be condemned for it. We're going to be condemned for it. And so it's not, it's not just important to walk the walk to, or to talk the talk, to sit in the right pew, to dress up really nice, and to come to services on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Thank goodness we keep going back to do that. But it's more than that. It's not just a three-day-a-week thing, Right? It's in every second of every minute of every day faith. It's backed up with action, or it's not real faith. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Have faith in God. And then he, he starts talking about this, this mountain, you know, take it up. If you, if you ask for the mountain to be taken up and thrown into the sea, um, but does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. It sounds an awful lot like Jesus is saying there that as long as I believe that God will give me whatever I want, whatever I ask for, I should just ask for it. He's going to give it to me. But we know that's not right, right? Have you tried that lately? <laughs> I tried that a lot when I was a teenager. I really want a Ferrari. I really want a Ferrari. Guess what? I'm not driving, <laughs> right? There's not four, room for four car seats in a Ferrari, you know? It's not what the text says. And we know that from the rest of Scripture. Obviously, we know that from the rest of Scripture. And so what is he trying to get across here? What, what's, what's he trying to, to teach us from this passage? When he says, he starts talking about, um, don't doubt 
in your heart. Well, James, ironically enough, talks about this passage, or this thought as well. Turn back over to James chapter 1 this time. James chapter 1. James talks a little bit about this guy who doubts. And so we're going we're gonna to try to figure out what he's doing here. Because I think Mark and James are, are saying something very similar here. James chapter 1. Let's start in verse 5. He's, talking, he's in the midst of a context talking about prayer. In verse 5 he says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all, without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. That sounds an awful lot like what Jesus is saying back in Mark chapter 11, doesn't it? He's unstable. He's like a wave tossed to and fro. Like what? But what is, what's he, am, am I that? How do I identify what a, a double-minded man is? How do I identify doubting? Because we all doubt at some point, right? You ever doubted? I think we all doubt at some point. I think that's natural. As things come and go in our life, as seasons come and go in our life, and, and some of those seasons are incredibly difficult, I think it's natural. I think it's normal. Uh, for that pinprick of doubt to start seeping into our minds. Let me take you all the way back to Genesis chapter 17, though. This passage that, that Mike read for us tonight. Genesis chapter 17. Go back and visit Abraham with me. Abraham is an old man at this point. He's, he's going to get older, right? This is not the end of Abraham's life. But he's an old man at this point. Uh, he is far beyond childbearing years. In fact, his wife is far beyond childbearing years. And God has been promising them for, at this point, a couple of decades that they're going to have a child. God promised Abraham when he was 75 years old, I'm going to, I'm going to give you a boy. I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham says, okay, okay. And then he waits. And God renews his promise. I don't know if it's every decade, but he does it a couple times throughout Scripture. Uh, right around here in Genesis 17... 15, he starts renewing this promise, reminding Abraham of what he's doing, of his promise that he's going to be faithful. Just hang in there, Abraham. I know you're 85. <laughs> give, me, give me time. It's not the right time just yet. And so uh, right here in Genesis chapter 17, uh, let's start. I, I want you to see what he says here. Um, I think it's important for what, our, for what we're talking about tonight. Uh, starting back in verse 15. <clears throat> And God said to Abraham, Genesis 17, verse 15, God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham, check this out, then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Was Abraham doubting? Yes, right? Yeah. I think that's a good way to categorize what's going on here in this passage. I don't know if he, how, how ex- extensive his doubt is here, but there's, there's at least a little seed of doubt. So is Abraham a double-minded man? Is he unstable in all of his ways? This is a one-time deal, I think. This is um, not a way of life for Abraham. 
In fact, this is uh, the only time I can think of uh, that, that this has happened where he doesn't trust God. So, did he doubt? Yes. But was his life characterized by doubt? No. What was his life characterized by? Faith. Trust. Right? And his actions back that up. Everybody with me? His actions back that up because by the time Isaac turns 13 years old, round about there, he is going to be uh, taking him to a mountain to sacrifice him to God. And he is so sure that God is going to come through, that he's going to fulfill that promise that he made to him 25, 30, 40 years ago at this point, that he's going to have a son, and that that son is going to have multiple children, and that a mighty nation is going to come out of that child. He's so sure that that promise is going to be fulfilled. He's okay killing the boy because he knows that if he has to, God's going to resurrect him. Somehow that promise is going to come true. Abraham is not a double-minded man. He doubted. But his life was characterized by faith. And so you take that knowledge with you back to Mark chapter 11. And you look at what Jesus is saying here. And you look at the apostles whose lives up until this point, while... They are ahead of others in their culture, namely the Pharisees and the Jewish leadership. They're ahead of them, but their lives are characterized by doubt, aren't they? They, they just haven't put two and two together yet. They're, they're, they're struggling. And so when Jesus curses the fig tree, you would like to think that the normal reaction would be, oh yeah, of course, that thing's dead. I mean, it's you go ahead and Call the funeral, and this thing is dead. But then Peter comes by the next day, and he's surprised that it's dead. Because he hadn't put two and two. He's characterized by doubt. And so Jesus says to him, after he says, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. He says, have faith in God. And he starts talking about doubting. Because that's where Peter and the rest of the disciples are. And that, incidentally, is where the Jewish leadership is. They just refuse to listen. They haven't put two and two together yet. Sometimes we're in the same boat, aren't we? We're characterized more by doubt than we are by faith. It's interesting that Scripture holds up Abraham as the pinnacle of faith. This man has incredible faith. And it's because of this incident with Isaac. This 25-year promise where Abraham held out, not just hope, but was confident that God was going to come through for him. So he's held up as, this, this, as the pinnacle of faith. And so he says... In verse 23 of Mark chapter 11, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart. What's your faith like? Is it characterized by doubt? Or is it characterized by faith? Because he says if if your life is characterized by doubt, you're not going to get what you want from the Lord. It's not just a, 
He's not a genie in a bottle, you know, like we can't just rub a lamp and expect him to obey our wishes. We don't get three wishes and then, you know, he's got to answer those things. It's not how this relationship works. He says, if your life is characterized by faith, real biblical faith, things that are backed up by action, not just word, but action, he says, you can ask for anything and I'll give it to you. Now, back to my Ferrari. <laughs> Why didn't I get that thing? Why doesn't he give us exactly what we want? Because sometimes, a lot of the times, I'm not asking in line with his will, right? I want something that's not good for me. I want something that's detrimental for me or something that's not in his plan. And so he says, no, I'm not going to give you that thing. The giver of good gifts. I'm not going to give you something that hurts you. Now, when we start thinking about biblical faith and the time that we've put into obtaining that biblical faith, the things that I ask for in prayer if I've put in the time for biblical, true biblical faith, it's a lot easier to ask for things that are in line with his will. Does that make sense? Is that, do you understand that? I think that's, a, I think that's an important principle to, 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 to make stick in our heads. And it's kind of what we've been talking about the last several weeks. The more time I spend around him, the more I love him, Everybody with me? And the more I think like him, the less I want the things of the world, right? Wednesday night we talked about those things growing strangely dim because I haven't focused on them. I don't want them. I don't go after those things anymore. Now I'm after him. And I want his things. And so all those things come in sharp focus. And all the stuff over here that I used to care about, I just don't care about anymore. I'm not focusing on those things. Those things are blurry. It's like the... You, you ever go to the, the eye doctor and he's like, what's the lowest line you can read? And I say, I don't even know that there's a piece of paper up there. Like, I can't see the E, you know. Give me my contacts back and send me my prescription. Those things are blurry. I can't, I can't, I can't see those things. I'm not focused on them. I don't have eyes for them, right? I don't have eyes for them. But the, his things, those things are in sharp focus now. And so when I pray... Guess what I'm praying for? To be more like him. To bring those things into sharper focus. And when I pray like that, he can move mountains. Remember, it's not my power. That was the problem with the disciples thinking that they uh, could uh, exercise, that they could cast out the demon from the little boy uh, back after the Mount of, at the Mount of Transfiguration. I think they were just so proud of themselves on that limited commission. They had gone out and Jesus had sent them two by two and they had done, God had done extravagant things through them. They had cast out demons, they had healed the sick, they had preached the gospel to people who up until that point for the last 400 years did not want to hear it. Incredible things were happening. And I think that, I think that puffed out their chests a little bit. I think that made them a little proud. And I think they thought that the power was in them. And Jesus says, this kind only comes out by prayer, i.e., Power's not in you. And you got to get that through our heads. They needed to get it, and so do we. So that's 
That's what I think he's trying to do here when he says this, this, the man who does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Because we're asking in line with what he wants, right? Biblical faith wants what he wants. And when I ask in line with what he wants, he can do anything, anything. Nothing's too big. Therefore, I tell you, verse 24, Mark 11, verse 24, Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. He, he says something interesting here. You might want to underline ask in verse 24. Ask. The three-letter word it packs a lot of punch. It is the idea of a subordinate pleading to uh, someone greater, an inferior talking to a superior, pleading with them to give them what they need. Now, if I have that right view of me, am I asking in line with his will? Make me more like you. I cannot do this on my own. I am nothing without you. I have no power, nothing good. I need you. That's what Jesus is saying here with that three little that little three-letter word. See how it packs a lot of punch? It means that I'm looking at me correctly, but I'm also looking at him correctly. With me? I think this, this little passage is so power-packed. Uh, verse 25, he says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who also is in heaven may forgive your trespasses. We've talked an awful lot over the years about my forgiveness of you being contingent upon his forgiveness of me. If I don't forgive you, he's not going to forgive me. And that's a terrifying thought, right? So that means we better get right with each other. Yeah? <laughs> Notice also that our goal here is not revenge, but redemption. Right? My goal on earth is not revenge. Remember he says in what's it, Romans 12, uh, where vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. My deal is not revenge. And in fact, Jesus is the perfect example of this because what does he pray on the cross? Father, forgive them. He goes, they don't know what they're doing. He let them off the hook for killing him. He let them off the hook. Can I let you off the hook for a slight that you, that you gave to me? Of course, right? When you put it like that, you say, well, yeah, of course. My goal is not revenge, but redemption. Forgiveness. Because at that point, I understand how much he's forgiven me. And forgiving you of what you've done is nothing next to the mountain that he's forgiven me. Do you see how real biblical faith plays into every word in this passage. If you are living out your faith, forgiveness is an awful lot easier to extend to someone who's hurt you. Still hard on occasion, aren't you, right? And when you see that person uh, around town or whatever, if they've done you wrong in a big way, you see them around town, that you might still have those feelings come up. And you're going to have to remind yourself, Man, God's forgiven me a ton. I, I need to let this go because it's eating me from the inside out. You're still going to have to say those things probably, right? But who you are, 
the real biblical faith. Not just the words, but the actions, the heart. That starts transforming you. You start looking more and more like this, praying in line with what he wants you to do. It's, it's so much more. Prayer is so much more than just bowing my head and talking. It's a lifestyle, right? And it's a change of who I am from the inside out. And it's necessary. I can't just continue being me and expect my prayer life to flourish. The more and more I transform into Him, the more and more and more my prayer life will flourish. And the more I, la- more I ask in line with His will. And the more I receive. I'm not asking for Ferraris anymore, right? We're asking for souls. People to come. Asking for patience and kindness and gentleness, right? We're asking for, for help and for wisdom, right? <clears throat> We're asking for reconciliation and peace. The more we transform into who He wants us to be, the easier life becomes. Um, in prayer, in understanding who I am, in viewing myself correctly, as well as in forgiveness. This text is so power-packed. Spend some time with it this week. Uh, just start picking it apart uh, like we've tried to do a little, for just a little bit tonight. <sighs> Reconciliation, though, your mind just it keeps coming back to that, that little point. Uh, as a Christian, it's what our hope is founded in. It, it was our initial hope when we came to Christ. And now, for some of us, 50, 60, 70 years later, it's still the burning hope within us to be reconciled, to be friends with God again. To not hold, for Him not to hold these things against us any longer. But to be friends, to have intimacy like we enjoyed with Him in the garden. That's what we can get back to, but it only happens through the power of baptism. I can't be friends with him while I'm carrying my sin around with me. Can't happen. I have to, as Mark would say, I have to submit. And I do that through the power of baptism, having my sins washed away. Maybe you've already made that decision tonight. And you just need the prayers of this congregation to be who God would have you to be, to be in line with his will. Someone who is always constantly growing, who is focused on becoming the person that he would have you to be. If you have that need tonight, why don't you come as we stand and sing. I've heard of a land of joy and peace and wonderful life. The beautiful place where mountains bear and skies are bright. Where all who believe the Savior dear forever shall stay.
Good evening. We have a few announcements to go with before we're dismissed. Uh, mark on your calendar for Sunday, June 6th. We'll begin our regular Bible classes that morning at 930. Um, two more graduation parties next weekend. Mike and Kelly have invited you to Mally's outdoor graduation party at their home Saturday, May 29th from 4 to 7. And Chad and Jennifer inviting you to Olivia's graduation party this coming Saturday, May 29th at their home from 6 to 9. So you hit Mally, then you hit Chad and Jennifer. You eat really well. Uh, on the prayer list, remember Yvonne Cornell. Uh, Wayne Stevens, Dottie Hager, Mildred Jones is now home. And remember Barrett Nipfer and his family, little boy undergoing uh, several tests for muscular dystrophy. Is there any other announcements that need to be made? If not, uh, before we close, we have the, you have the opportunity to take the Lord's Supper. It still remains in that room to my left. Um, you're right. We'll have one more song and a closing word of prayer. Close this evening with standing on a solid rock. <clears throat> Through my disappointment, strife, and discontentment, I cast my every care on the Lord. No matter what obsession, pain, or deep depression, I'm standing on the solid. Yeah.
bow with me. Dear God, thank you for this day and everything you've given us, and thank you for Chris giving us a lesson today, and help us live with faith, and help us walk the walk, and do what the Bible says, and show in the way we live, and please be with all the seniors, and help them go out and teach your word, and still live Christian-like, and thank you for this church group that we have here, and help us pick each other up if we ever need anything, and Please be with us as we leave here and help us be safe. And thank you for Jesus on the cross to forgive us of our sins. And Jesus Christ, name we pray. Amen.